great honor and also great joy, above all, great joy to welcome here to the Bacchanalos. This is the first time that you have been to one of our Canadas lectures. I hope it's only the first many in your case. It was um, entirely owing to you. Thanks to you that you are having this meeting in this very beautiful room since you invited us to come and share with some of the works and the aims of your Institute of Architecture. I think it was three years ago you invited me to tell you what Tenenos stood for. And I think I said in a very sweeping manner, what we really want to do is to reverse the premises of the materialist civilization rather than our program, to which, sir, you replied, that's what I would like to do with my institute of architecture. So here we are at work on that very task, not entirely without some effect. And we also had the honor of publishing the inaugural speech you gave, uh, announcing the inauguration of the Institute of Architecture, in which you used a number of words that one rarely hears at this time, which I think two, especially one was the sacred, the other was the word hope. Perhaps one can't have one without the other. And we very much hope, I deeply into my heart, hope that we of Temenos will be able to support your great vision of this change, this, these, these values which you so courageously support in this very dark world. Of course, Keith Fritchner has been laying the foundations of your Institute of Architecture from the first, and is now your professor. But Temenos can claim an even earlier association with Keith, who was uh, one of the founder, the founder editors of Temenos, which was started in the year 1980, and has made frequent contributions to that journal over the years, which has now become, instead, we've no longer published in the journal, the Tenoros Academy has taken its roots from that time. But more important than either of these things, Keith stands for, represents at this time, the canon of sacred object, sacred geometry and number, which is an age-old uh, tradition older than Socrates, older than Pythagoras, older than recorded history, and has remained throughout uh, civilization the structure upon which all the greatest buildings of Europe and all civilizations have been built. And we shall great pleasure in here you, Professor Pritchler.
And he got most exciting when most excited <coughs> when uh, Reims is on Alpha up here. Found a little village down here called the Lepine, and that is the name of the star in the sky, Lepine. Take it as you will. It may be a total coincidence, but if it's not, it's an indication of a, a, a category of knowledge which is quite outside modern speculation. And that is that the object of civilization, the object of a revelation, is to actually bring heaven on earth. And that may be a pattern which can be taken seriously. But it's a series of very remarkable coincidences. Next one here. <coughs> here we have a map of the city of Chartres. We can see the shape of the medieval city here with the water, the river running through it. And the cathedral, quite unconventionally, is not orientated like most cathedrals and churches, um, east-west, with north and south. It is orientated on an angle which is believed to be the easternmost rising of the sun at midsummer. So it's, it's, it's really considerably, considerably off the normal orientation. Now I'm now going to make another reasonably outrageous observation, and you can again, please don't swallow it. Whatever you do, don't, never swallow anything I say. Don't swallow it, but I, I was absolutely fascinated by looking at this shape of the medieval city and the position of the cathedral. I decided to turn it around, there's a drawing coming on here now, and just draw the churches in, and here's the flow of the river going through, which I made just to myself a metaphor between that and the cerebrospinal fluid, and here is the head the skull and the face, and here we have the cathedral sitting in the place where the pituitary gland is. Enough of this speculation. <laughs> <laughs> then somebody observed after uh, one of my lectures, it looks marginally more like a monkey than human beings. So anyway, <laughs> sorry, next one here. <coughs> but the position of the cathedral in the medieval city is absolutely fascinating. This is an extremely good image of it. Because the cathedral is not only... Um, mansion or a house for the Virgin Mary, of which has many series of symbolic meanings, but it stands in itself as a prototype of the heavenly city. And here is the city within the city. It's a, it's a, it is the heavenly prototype standing proud by a huge amount from the medieval houses which still exist. And what is fascinating, this, this is a particularly fascinating building here, this quarter here was the Jewish quarter. It was a very important Jewish community who was part of the theological discussions at Shah, which is virtually unrecorded by modern Christianity. Fortunate enough to have a member of the audience who has helped me a lot in my researches on that, because I'm going to propose and show evidence for the contribution of not only the Islamic dimension coming from Spain, but the Jewish dimension coming from the community who lived here. There were three very important Jewish scholars and one poet who were living that time with two synagogues within the shadow, as it's called, the Jewish community called, within the shadow of the cathedral on the north side here. Next one over there. Not to be sentimental about the city, it suffers from exactly the same things that any modern city does. Thank God, not so badly, there's no high-rise buildings around the medieval city, but as soon as you go there, you see every accoutrement of modernism, the petrol being burnt up, the electricity being burnt up, but the cathedral is still there, so thank God it's still there. And when you go to Chartres, um, it isn't at all difficult to experience it from any point of view. In other words, it's standing high, and you can see the river flowing down here, and it falls down very, very steeply to the river. It's standing high on a rock. We have no idea where the audacity to build it came from. 
It is the mother of all Gothic cathedrals. Nobody has any idea where the people who designed it got the courage to span 40 feet, which has never been done before. To build that high, to, to exhaust the resources of the whole <coughs> area financially to build it, and for, 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 for the faith to believe they could build a building that wide and span across it. We have no idea, no records whatsoever as to where they got the courage to do it. It hasn't moved in 700 years. Incredible. Next one over here. And next one here. I wanted to put just a wee um, reminder that unless we look at a cathedral from at least four levels of appreciation, we don't have any idea how to look at a sacred building. We can't just treat it as, as a piece of history and talk about it historically as a style that came and went. So I've made this little quotation. Maritianus Capella and Chalcidius were the two documents that were transmitted to the school of Chartres which carried the Platonic doctrines. And they built their worldview on making sure that everything they did was operating on four levels. These four levels often are made as a metaphor for the four Gospels, the fourfold orientation we have on the teachings of Christ. The first level, the Historia level, is the literal level. The second level is the symbolic or allegorical. The third is the tropological, that means the turning around of the soul, or the moral level. The fourthly, the anagogical, that is the transcendental unifying level. Unless every piece of the cathedral points towards totality and unity, it's not doing its job. So the cathedral can be read from all those four levels, and that's why I've um, become more and more, I suppose the word is courageous, quite happy to lose my career as a scholar by making some of the proposals I'm going to make in this lecture. Because I feel quite sure, because the schools chart set these up, that it is valid to, to project and to seek out these symbolic levels. Next one here. The very first thing, we're now looking closely at the Royal Portal, the West Front, and immediately we see something fascinating. The four levels are given to us very plainly, if we, wish, if we, if we wait to see them. This is the transitory level. Some of the people in this photograph may not be alive now. This is the passing level of us day, day to day. As soon as that level has been fulfilled, this level begins. And here we have these incredible figures. They're called the royal figures at Chartres. They are beings which have transcended time and represent the essence of one aspect of passing humanity. So we have the royal level here. I've actually written an article about one of these figures in the Feminist magazine. These are transcended by the next level, which is the level of the apostles. What's fascinating at Chartres is Chartres teaches there are 14 apostles. Not only that, 12 of them 3, 6, 9, 12, each have books. It is actually a tradition in Turkish Sufism that the 12 apostles of Christianity each wrote a gospel. They haven't survived, and that's something else. But there happen to be 14 at the apostle level. Above that is the completed human being, if you like, the God-man, that is the fourth level, that is Christ as God. Human, divine. We'll come back to this. There are your four levels. One, Two, three, four. Close up of Christ in glory shows him within a very precise geometric figure, which not only represents a geometric figure, and the normal symbolism of it is the sun and the moon overlapping in, in harmony, 
two complete circles, but it's also representative of his light body. We can now talk about light bodies because as Christians in this part of the world we have had to come to terms with other religions who teach the doctrine of light bodies very openly and now we'll be able to look back through our Christian heritage and see the representation of the light body. The light body is not immediately available to the physical eye, but it is available to the eye of perception. There's a quotation in the notes that you've got, which we'll talk about that. Plato talks about the eye of perception. That eye, the only one that can see truth, is worth 10,000 of your physical eyes. That's what he says in the public. Next one here. So the body of Christ, as it's seen at human scale, is reproduced in the geometry of the whole building. That is the arc, or the, uh, two, two arcs, as we say in ge- geometry, becomes the arc um, in the biblical sense, in the symbolic sense, and, and the, this, this shape is made by a compass striking two parts. In fact, they are a third of a circle. The centre of this arc is on this doorpost. It is an image of Christ with the Gospels in his hand, we'll see later. This is an image of Mary holding the Christ child. So these two iconographic statues represent the geometric centres of two arcs which give you the whole, if you like, the whole vibration. If that was a stretch thread, it was vibrating um, from the uppermost part of the ambulatory. The, the normal way is, is to come through this door and to travel around and back. The Lay people were allowed right into the Holy of Holies of the cathedral. It's a very interesting period. And that were able to go all the way around and see the high altar being having mass on it. Just point out two each side there are two different columns, otherwise they're nearly all octagonal columns all the way around, two there, two there, and that is meant to be the position of where the high altar was originally. <coughs> Next one there. This is the history of the building. Um, it was the largest and most ambitious cathedral um, to be set out in Christendom after St. Peter's in Rome by its greatest teacher, who had taken on the Platonic teachings, and he was called by his students Socrates. That's an intriguing thing for, for a Christian community. That is Bishop Fulbert, the red here, you can see the very earliest pre Christian building. And my arm is not long enough. Um, I can't stretch it, and I haven't got a point there, but anyway. The pre-Christian temple is where the apse is up there. Then in the ninth century, a little church was brought down as far as here. And then Fulbert comes along and does this incredible um, Romanesque, as we would call it, cathedral coming here. And it is believed two towers standing proud of the building, standing in front of the building. Now what is amazing is that suddenly there was this, this incredible fire which is one of the miracles of Chartres. Um, Chartres happens to have as its sacred relic um, the garment that Mary was wearing at the birth of Jesus. It's still there. And there was this terrible crisis. Fulbert's cathedral caught fire and, and burnt to the ground. It was the most uh, devastating thing for the whole of Christendom, let alone for Fulbert and for the uh, town of Chartres. And the worst thing a lot was they were quite convinced the, shard, the, the, the garment of Mary would have been burnt. What happened was, seven days later, five monks came out of the crypt and they had decided to die with the garment, but not, they didn't die with the garment, they came out with it and the garment was saved. And the energy that that simple act did for the whole of the city and for the whole of, of Britain and France was a huge pouring of funds 
to say, okay, let's now build the best cathedral. So they, the cathedral came right out to here. <laughs> <laughs> I got a prompt in the room. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. I can now reach the heavens. Wonderful. So here we have a question mark. Why suddenly did the new cathedral come right out onto these wings where it previously finished here. And I just want to put this to you. This is an example, in my mind, of how Christianity and Platonism are working together on the plan. Next one here. First of all, this is a diagram of the temple in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Kings. And the temple is this shape here, and has two towers, Jashin and Boaz, standing in front of the opening of the sanctuary, and the Holy of Holies is here. Now what I did on this diagram, I showed that the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. The unfolding of a cube, this gives us the pattern of a cube unfolded to here, to the, to the towers. There is the unfolded cube. If you wrap this up, it would be a perfect cube here. And that is a 3 by 4 rectangle. That is the musical fourth. Proportionally, that's the musical fourth. Now what it turns out, the centre of this square and the centre of that square happen to be, next one here, there they are, there and there. They, they are the centres of, of that vesicle we saw previously. They're the centres, there's the gatepost here and the gatepost there. Now this is the unfolded cube, and Plato taught that the cube was the perfection of the material plane. It was a molecule of earth. And the word earth for Plato stood for the sensorial plane, as the shape called the icosahedron stood for the water, plane, and the water is the emotional plane, the octahedron is the air, the air is the intellectual plane, and the tetrahedron fire, fire is the spiritual plane. So those four levels were taught in Plato, and here is the perfection of the material plane. In Islam, we have a black cube. The Kaaba is the perfect form in black, where all Muslims pray towards. That is their expression of it. Here, the cube has been opened so that the spirit, which is the sphere, can rise back to heaven. It's just a different expression, same thing. So here we have, next one here. Here we have the quotation from Plato, in the Greek first, and a translation underneath. Geometry is the study of the eternally existent. That which is always true, that which is always relevant, that which is always. Geometry is one of those four universal languages which is true for all people at all time. And that is why it was adopted by the School of Shah. Next one over there. And here is a later drawing. Um, a Renaissance drawing, in fact. Um, I'm putting it in so that we can see, you, you can see the cube inside here. There's the top square of the cube. There's the wing of the cube here. There's the center of the cube, other wing of the cube, and the other two squares coming down to here. This is by Francesca Di Giorgio from Venice. And... I just wanted to make the point that you could also see immediately here that the radiance from the heart is touching on not just the physical body, but the light body. They're known as chakras in the Indian uh, terminology. And what's fascinating, if you come from Bengal, you spell chakra, chakra, which is precisely the same as chakra, and the French pronounce it differently. Total coincidence, please don't go <laughs> <laughs> Here is a window, one of the windows in the nave going down, one of the rosette windows, and I don't think it takes too much imagination to see that the, first of all, the reduction of sacred imagery to two dimensions, 
is fundamental to Islam, and it's fundamental to all say that is, the second dimension is moving back towards the divine where it came from, and the third dimension is one dimension further away from the divine where it came from. So here we have the whole impulse of Gothic to represent everything in light, and to reduce the walls as far as possible to light. And we also have the miracle of the glass here. You see the light coming from this colored glass, touching the stonework here, but you don't see any color. And nobody's explained that. They've tried very hard, but nobody can explain how this piece of glass, which is a quarter of an inch thick, can break the spectrum up into an intense red, but not throw red light onto the stone. It's called the miracle of the glass. Now, it's, this is such an uncomfortable idea to, to um, modern um, physicists that uh, goodness knows how many pages have been written saying it's uh, something to do with the pollution outside, or something to do with something to do with something to do with the other. Anyway, the fact of the matter is, I've also had students come back to me and say, "Oh, I saw some coloured spots on the, on the floor of the Church Cathedral. You can't be right." I said, "What you saw were spots. What do you think those spots were? They were the modern glass. They were a replacement. If you saw a flood of colour on the floor of Church, fine. Then I just said I was wrong." But here we have something which is not able to be explained at the moment, and that is the alchemist who made this glass, and we went to see the glassmakers who are still there, the, the line is still there, and the man showed us how they made it, but they don't, they cannot make the glass which doesn't transmit coloured light any longer into the space. So we move into the interior from the outside, and um, apart from this, which is quite obviously very new, and Baroque and High Renaissance, it is often described in the architectural world as being a virgin space because they have never allowed any extraneous sculpture or monuments of, to individuals in there. To me personally, it's rather sad they allow this in here, this organ, because the whole acoustics has been designed for plain chant. And we, want, we were allowed in there one morning before dawn, with myself and a group of students, and one of them. Um, had a guitar with him, and he went off to the North Tower, and we were right down here in the sanctuary, and he was just very gently tuning his guitar in the North um, Tower, and we could hear it absolutely clearly. And we realized a single voice in that cathedral would be totally orchestrated by the, um, what is called the reverberation, and also the delay in the, in the voice spreading. So plain chart and side chart is quite incredible. I did have some plain chart on it. Take down here, but I don't know how to switch it on, so it doesn't matter. We won't have it. Next one here. Now I wanted to put a reminder. Forgive me again for going into the Renaissance. This is Pinturicchio and showing the light body of the Virgin in the same traditional form. But we can see now, if this is described as a mansion for the Virgin, we can see how the Virgin is Virgin space, and the shape. This is the physical body. The soul of the building is that which is space, that which is used. But we can also see the metaphor between this form here, which is a later painting, but the symbolism was used at the time, is the way in which this space in here would be considered to be full, full of Mary or Marian energy. And Mary was considered also at this time to be the epitome of Sophia, divine wisdom. And we'll, we'll see the quotation from the Book of Solomon shortly, which shows the exact passage which, which inspired the putting together of the Platonic tradition with the Christian revelation. In fact, the Holy Spirit was called by St. Bernard of Clairvaux as well as St. Bernard of Chartres. The Holy Spirit was to be directly made parallel with the world soul of Plato, which was put together by musical harmony. Next one here. 
Here we see the relationship between the river and Chartres and the cathedral towering above the medieval city. And, and what a joy to see that without any interference of a modern high-rise building. And the tragic mistake that high-rise buildings represent. And the way in which Paul St. Paul's cathedral has been overwhelmed by the forces of materialism. I say that because I have nothing to do with the city. <coughs> Next one here. Now, this is the quotation from the Wisdom of Solomon. And this is Solomon speaking. Thou didst choose me to be king of thine own people, and judge over thy sons and daughters. Thou didst tell me to build a temple on the sacred mountain, and an altar in the city, which is thy dwelling place. A copy of the sacred tabernacle prepared by thee from the beginning. Now that, the very last part of that, inspired Fulbert to design his cathedral because he saw an exact parallel between the tabernacle prepared by thee from the beginning with Plato's world soul being constructed by the personage which, which Plato described as the <coughs> demiurgos. Now I'm going to have the, the second part of this quotation also brings in this dimension of wisdom as Maria. And with thee is wisdom, who is familiar with thy works, and was present at the making of the world. Again, the, the parallel with Plato's Timaeus. Who knows what is acceptable to thee, and in line with thy commandments. Sent her forth from the holy heavens, and from thy glorious throne, and bid her come down, so that she may labor at my side, and I may learn what pleaseth thee. So here is actually using the, if you like, the Marian energy, the energy of Mary, as Sophia, as wisdom, as the, the delegate of God, to work with the builders of the cathedral. Next one here. Now, the rather strange thing is, you come in, and on the floor, before you've walked too far, you find some strange things happening under your feet, and that is some strange patterns in the pavement. And what is fascinating is that, with the greatest respect to the people who look after Chartres Cathedral, the labyrinth, which is what we're seeing a little bit of here, does not come into the world picture of, of the contemporary guardians of this sacred shrine. Therefore, they keep it covered with chairs. It's a great sadness. Um, the reason being, I hope, to demonstrate why it is so important that it should be uncovered. I gave this lecture in America, and one of the cathedrals in Los Angeles decided they were so impressed with, with the idea of what that was doing there, they have actually made a labyrinth and put it in the floor of the cathedral there, in canvas, I might say, not in stone, not that in virtual. Next one here. This is what happened when we were allowed to go and film there. Two of my children are in the room, and one is here and one is there. The oldest one just got married, and she's somewhere in Hungary, we don't know where. But this is where all the chairs are taken away, and we see the whole labyrinth as it is. Now, what the contemporary guardians of Sharks say is that when the chairs are not on the labyrinth, they simply can't keep people from going around it. Well, that's exactly why it's there. <laughs> that is, that's the tragedy. The point being that to make one's advance into the sacred space, one has to traverse this, which is a mnemonic, a memory diagram, as, as Plato called it, the, the, a diagram of an, an, anamnesis, one of remembrance as to how you came into this world and how you might get out of it. That's my thesis as to what remains the labyrinth. It's a labyrinth, not a maze. Strictly speaking, there's only one path. Next one here. Now, I want to quote an of the early Christian fathers because, again, there's quite a lot of suspicion in Christian circles as to whether there really are esoteric doctrines. And here is the authority of Oregon. 
forest origin argument, isn't it? The existence of certain doctrines which are beyond those that are exoteric and do not reach the multitude is not a peculiarity of Christian doctrine alone, but is shared by the philosophers that they had some doctrines which were exoteric and some esoteric. Now, the next diagram I'm going to show you is the philosopher Cicero, and it is a footnote, a little diagrammatic footnote, to his work, his platonic work, called The Dream of Scipio. And on it is the world picture. This is, this is this commentary by Macrobius on the Dream of Scipio, and I might say that all the, all the bishops and the great writers from the School of Shirach were, were very inspired by the Dream of Scipio, as was Dante, and here is the world picture. Now, when we go from here, which is the Earth, we have the, the, the envelope of the Moon, that is the envelope through which the Moon moves, the envelope of the Sun, or the sphere of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and we reach the celestial sphere. Now that is the limit of, of the physical world. Beyond that are three other worlds. Now those three other worlds would relate, in this case, to the world soul of Plato, and therefore the Holy Spirit, to Christ as the, as the, as the intellect, and the supreme, the one, the unnameable God. Basically, the unnameable the one. So that was the pattern, the objective <coughs> pattern of the cosmos. And the next one here, it has a curious habit <coughs> of being picked up by the Christians. What you will find here, those two extra spaces are here and here, and here you see God enthroned and in glory above the 11 spaces. There are 11 spaces to here, and then what is just simply called earth and stationary here has fire, air, water, and earth in it. There are the four elements. But this is the physical world, and then the envelope of the moon, then of Mercury, then of Venus, the sun. <coughs> Next one here. Then, to say the least, it isn't that curious that we find the Islamic world picture of the same period being identical. But not only that, what is fascinating here in these envelopes, these psychological or spiritual envelopes which are represented by the planets, in Islam each one is taken up by one of the prophets. And one has to study the work of Arabic to get anywhere near the depth of meaning involved. But here again are the envelopes, colours associated with it. These colours are the colours which inform the art of Islam and the colours of the tiles and so forth. These colours will tell you if you knew how to read them what are the planetary combinations in that particular decoration of that mosque and so forth. We have the sun and the moon out here. Next one here. So I took the cue from a piece of sculpture which showed the heavens being red as a series of envelopes. This may well be Timaeus himself. I don't know who the figure is here. It's an astronomer explaining the envelopes of reality that we find ourselves in. These envelopes are really physical envelopes, but they're psychological and spiritual envelopes. Of our, of our being as much as the being of the universe above us. Next one there. So I put the model from Cicero's Dreams Scipio onto the maze and we found the exactly works. In other words, there happened to be exactly 11 paths out from the center. Moon, Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Zodiac, Soul, Mind, the Supreme One. Now the point then becomes that when you walk on the labyrinth, you are making the entry, as you come in, you're making your entry from the supreme unity back into differentiation and traversing all the paths of the different psychological envelopes you have to go through before being born into the physical world. 
That's why. I, that's the basis of it being a memory. That's the basis of it being a memory. Excellent. And here is Ibn Arabi's model of the universe, the Islamic view, or I should say the Sufi view. Now, of course, there are 15, if we count from the earth out of the 15, if we count from, in other words, the, the names will be different. The sphere of the divine throne, the sphere of the divine pedestal, the sky without stars, and the zodiacal powers. And we come into the first three are beyond physical sight. We come into physical sight at the fixed stars, the stations, and then Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury. When we get to here, when we get to the 11th envelope, again, we have the four elements inside. So that the 11 envelopes are identical. The teaching of the modern genius is identical because the Jewish scholars, the Christian scholars, and the Islamic scholars were all meeting and discussing the objective universe in Toledo at the time. Again, something which sadly gets lost and gets swept aside by history because everybody suddenly wants to become just one view from our view must be right, let's try and forget the other people ever existed. So at this time, very remarkable time in history, and the main inspiration behind the theology was, a, was an Irishman called John Scotus Eregina. And he went to Spain, he learned Hebrew, he learned Arabic, and he learned, um, he had Latin, and he learned four languages, and absorbed as much as he could, and came back and wrote some incredible theology, which was the basis inspiration behind Shah. So, how do we explain these in terms of the pattern on the maze? Next one here on the, on the ladder. I took this photograph from the boss, looking through the boss, about 300 feet above. I had a straps all over me because I was as nervous as we could possibly be hanging out of this cold. Could have been make a wonderful scramble there if I could. And this is a view down the centre part of the labyrinth, which had, used to have a metal plate. And there's all sorts of different stories what was on the metal plate. We're now seeing the final entry into the, well, the 11 envelopes start from here. So what was fascinating was I made an exact geometric analysis of that interior space, next one here, and found by taking the exact width of the path and placing them within, I got one, two, three, which gave me one, two, three, four widths of path which are inside the pattern. Therefore, it wasn't difficult to see what they had done and how precisely they had kept the geometry, unbelievably precisely. Next one here, that it's very easy to see what they represent. The center is earth, the next one's water, the next one's air. As you enter the sphere, you're entering into incarnation as we know it. And you have to take on a cladding of, if you like, light, air, <coughs> water, and earth. In modern science, this is called the domain of radiation, the domain of, of gaseousness, the domain of liquidness, and the domain of solidity. But they're the same things, whether you call them by modern scientific terms or the ancient terms. So, the model is very, very precise, and I felt that was a good uh, reinforcement to our theory. Next one here. Now, the other interesting thing is, okay, you came in this domain, but you've got six areas to go through before you came out. What, what did that mean? I imagined the path would have to go something like this before returning. So, I found in the contemporary documents the six stages of human development as seen about the next thing. They're in Latin, and you can translate them as you will, as you like, but the first one is the acknowledgement of the vegetative life in myself. The second is an acknowledgement of the reproductive life. The second is uh, an acknowledgement of the, the sensitive life in oneself, and then the active life, and then the reflective life, until one is, with good fortune and God willing, you actually discover your 
human and divine nature. That is the six-fold exercise before you. The return journey then takes you right through all the spheres that the soul was projected through according to this idea. Next one. And here is a piece of contemporary poetry by the head and shoulders genius of the time, a man called Bernardus Silvestris. And I doubt if many Christian scholars you might come across would even know who he was. And if they did, it's very unlikely they've read his work. It was only translated very recently, and it's out of print, and it's extremely hard to get hold of. Bernard Silvestris, and he wrote this wonderful allegorical um, cosmology. And said, the human soul must be guided. Urania is speaking. Urania is the, is the um, spirit of the stars. Again, an aspect of, of, of the feminine divine wisdom. The human soul must be guided by me through all the realms of heaven. This is a perfect description of what the maze is about. That it may have knowledge of the laws of the fates and the inexorable destiny and the shiftings of unstable fortune. What occurrences are wholly open to determination of will and what are subject to necessity? If you go back through these things, you'll find all those key mysteries about one's existence. And what is subject to uncertain accident and how, by the power of memory, she may recall. Now, this continues the quotation this is on your seat in your notes. But this is an exact piece of Platonism. If one takes the idea that Platonism is about anamnesis, because the word anamnesis can be translated in Arabic as zikr, to recall, to call on God. And it can be translated by Christ, do this in remembrance of me, the one thing he insisted the Mass. So the idea of remembering, memory, recall, and the word call means call, doesn't mean just quietly thinking. Uh, it, it is very, very um, full of, of, of a rich series of ideas there. Next one. So we've been looking at the labyrinth, which is on the floor here. Again, covered by chest. And again, being reminded not only of this wonderful space, but the position of this window in that space, and the position of these windows that you look at. Next one here. Uh, again, forgive me, I'm moving forward a little bit in time in the Renaissance in Italy. <coughs> and this is Giovanni of Milano, an image of God the Creator. But, and he has in his hand the creation. And this is very, very beautiful. And the key to creation is here. Next one is a close-up of this because it really does, it, it bears looking at. What do we see? We see six eight-pointed stars around a seven eight-pointed star. They are the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. That is the common doctrine held by the Jews, the Muslims, and the Christians. Although this is called the throne in the Quran. So the three monotheistic religions all agree on those six intervals of creation. There he is holding creation. Now I'm going to go back to the plan of the building. And on the plan of the building, we have John James discovered this. This center point here is where all the radiant form both in three dimensions and two dimensions, but the whole cathedral radiate from here. There is a precise hexagon on the inner face of the um, crossing here and the center of the labyrinth. Here's the labyrinth we've just been looking at. This is absolutely precise, and John James claimed it was precise to a matter of millimeters. He was so excited at his discoveries. So here we have this, this hexagon sitting inside the big vesica, which we knew was centered from here and from here, goes right up to there and right below down to here, but within that is this perfect hexagon. And I submit it is an expression of, of this form. Next one over there. I'm also going to submit that here is the same hexagon, 
one, two, three, four, five, six, and the center. This is exactly where the crossing is. Here again, we see why the plan was drawn out to here, maybe. Because what we're looking at now is the Judaic contribution, the Jewish geometry. Okay, we've had the Greek geometry. What were the Jews doing there in charge? Why was the great Matthias there? Why was Joseph in charge that celebrated all of Europe? He was living here within the shadow. And there were theological. They must have made a contribution. Here's the labyrinth. Here's the crossing. Here's the ancient sanctuary. These three are known in Kabbalah as being transcendental. And these are the six of creation. And then we have the final world down here, which is a bridge between the cathedral and the outside world. Again, coincidentally, if you like, and we're fortunate enough to have an expert in these matters in the audience. He may possibly even speak to somebody afterwards. Um, I'm going to show what also happens when we take a tree, this is called a tree, between there and there. On the plan, next one here. So now we have the tree starting on the labyrinth, the centre in the crossing, and the climax at that rompomp, as it's called, the, the geometric centre of the apse. And we have a series of very interesting coincidences. I would not like to claim more than that, but it's very interesting. These intervals are one-twelfth of that circle. If you continued all these equally, there'd be 12 around there. And we'll be looking at the boss in the ceiling at this point, and it's at that point you can see all the rose windows, the one in the south, the one in the north, and the one in the west, in this point here. And that is known, that position in the tree is the sun. It just happens to be that these hold one column each, in the, and that is that same pattern we saw in the creation pattern, the sixth around the seventh, and the two which are different are here bordered, 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 and that gave the position, by drawing a line between there and there, gave the position where the high altar was, and that is that position there, which is usually done in dotted lines because it's known, it's not one of, it's not considered to be one in the specific sense, it's called the Ath, and it usually means knowledge. One of the translations. Next one over there. Now, just to flog um, this a little, if I may, <coughs> coming back to Christ as the archetype, the divine human, and the four creatures in sculpture. I here are the four. And I have projected now the same pattern onto this figure because you use this construction in the making of the geometry of that. And I thought, well, here is an opportunity. Let's see if there's any evidence. So, this is what I came to. Next one here. And I felt it was convincing enough to put in front of you. Here we have the lowest of the, the tree, and that is at the feet of the apostles, just breaking ground to the world below. Here we have the next one, which is linking the heads of the apostle with the feet of Christ. And then we have the four Gospels taking up these four <coughs> positions, and then we have the four transcendental ones. Now, what's interesting is the head of Christ in his halo is just down from the normal position where that would be, but the, ge the geometry of his shape is precisely to the centre of where the art will be. So that has descended slightly to be the halo of Christ, which is fascinating. Now, what is most interesting is that what is up here, this one, next one over here, you can now see it from the side. Here we, this, this one is called, in the Jewish tradition, the crown. And there is what you see inside that circle. And again, another one of it, not only it is called the crown, but it's called the next one here. It's called the hollow crown. Okay, coincidence may be, but it is a very remarkable coincidence. It is, and it does show. You can see these are modern, of course. These ones up here. But it does show that there is a possibility that we could 
entertain the idea that the Jewish Kabbalists were contributing quite majorly, because after all, they were the authorities on the Torah, which we have rather curiously called the Old Testament. Next one here. Right, let's go back to the geometry and the plan, <coughs> and remember, one arc is struck from here, this arc, sorry, I'm not getting something out here. The other arc is struck from here, which is that arc, and we can see if we wanted to put an octave inside it, that is to do the same thing inside, rather nicely they cross over the centres of these when we join the diagonals of the hexagon, we find we're locating these very nicely, they're not in a square, they're actually in um, a particular proportion of the hexagon, and the major arcs all together on this diagram now. Next one over there. You'll have, to, you'll have to go on to this one. Um, for some reason, we decide, yes, can we go to this one now? Oh, let's go back and I'll explain what I'm going to do. What it amounts to here is we have two towers, as we know, and they believe that these towers were standing in front. Full that's the people finished here, and the people was brought forward. Now this is one tower, and this is the other tower. And on top of this tower is the moon, quite clearly. And the oldest engravings and pictures of the Gothic cathedral, the moon was always on this tower, and the sun was on top of this one. This is the one which is taller, that's for sure. Now, when I was doing drawings, very careful drawings of charts, and analysing it, I put my drawings together in a drawer. When I pulled them out, I was very surprised to find the next one here, like two drawings on top of each other, a brown drawing on top of a blue one, and the brown drawing demonstrates the fact that if the cathedral, which is normally like this, was folded flat, in other words, if we took the elevation and folded it down onto the plan, the solar tower exactly fits inside the columns and comes to a conclusion here. It also happens to be 365 feet to that point from your first step inside the front door. Now, if you don't know what 365 is, I explain it's the number of days in the year. So, what do we have? A very curious thing. Here's the solar tower actually marking out in human feet the very things that we traverse the earth with, the very things that we, we, we are able to, to make our journey down the cathedral. 365 of those bring us to that point there. That is actually. In terms of the crown of the body, which this is a symbol of, that is the point of release of the soul. So that is the conclusion of the physical life. Okay, I thought, well, if that works, let's see what happens in this one. I mean, this just sees a close-up, I think, now of the solar tower as it reaches. Here is the wrong point. That is the geometric point which radiates, but here is the concluding 365 feet of the solar tower. Next one here, we, I slid the moon tower over to see what that did on the plan. And here's the moon tower, and here's the, you can see the difference inside. Now what's interesting is most lectures on Shark's Cathedral when I was a student, wonderful time explaining how these guys really wanted to make it different from that. And the whole thing was to do with style, and these guys were competing and trying to be better and all that kind of thing. But my conviction is that when that tower was being built, this one had already been fixed as to its height, but a great deal of freedom was left to the carvers as to how much they carved what they believed to be right at that time. But the height was fixed, I'm sure. Otherwise, it would not have been 375 feet to here, which incidentally is exactly the height of St. Paul's Cathedral above the pavement, as everybody knows. And remember what Christopher Wren said in his tomb down the basement, he said, if you want to know about me, look around you. What better advice could you have? Next one here. There is, sorry, there is the moon tower on here. This one, sorry, 
And here's the whole moon tower, starting from the entrance into the cathedral, the moon tower again sits inside, and it comes to conclusion on the wrong top. There is the golden orb on top of the moon tower, taking in three centers. There are three centers there which they struck this huge series of arcs on. So the moon. Now, what is fascinating is why the moon tower was doing this in the sun. That was 365. We discovered that was 28 feet shorter. How does 28 relate to the moon? <coughs> Obvious, isn't it? It's the moon cycle. It happens to be 12. The moon goes into 13 phases every year. So if you take the 13th phase away, you have the completion of the moon cycle here. Okay, next one here. Above that point, in three-dimensional space, is Gabriel, who moves according to the wind. And the wind in Greek is pneuma. Spirit and wind have the same meaning that the original, the original writing of the Gospels of Christianity was in Greek. And there is the angel, and the wind will blow the angel's wings, and she will always be blessing the direction the wind is coming from. And she is standing exactly above this point, um, another 200 feet in space. Next one here will show you that as best I could take it from the telescopic lens. There she is, or there is the angel Gabriel here, on right above the wrong pole, and here are this incredible. It's like these these were put in later, I have to add. The original, the first place to have flying buttresses was sharp. But they were a little bit nervous about the thrust from here, so they added these later. But the number of wheels, like the, the, the vision of Ezekiel, the number of wheels, the obeisance which is being claimed by all this stonework to that central axis down the moon shaft is, is quite incredible. Now, if that is a little bit wonky, it's because I was extremely wonky when I took that slide. <laughs> in a light aircraft being flown over shaft by a good musician friend of mine at the time, and I knew I wasn't meant to be out there, only angels allowed out there, and I felt extremely nervous, but so I couldn't quite get the picture straight. But here is what I'm talking about, here's Gabriel, here are all these, this incredible um, drum of energy being pointed into the, uh, this axis, and I suddenly, as I was flying around the air, I suddenly saw all these buttresses as being the citizens of Shaft, giving their all to offer the cross back up to the heavens. And the only possible place that we'll be able to appreciate that would be the heavens. And of course, nobody at that time would ever be able to be in the space that I was to see it. So it's like the whole, this whole cross is being offered back up to the heavens by all this amazing force of the stonework. <coughs> if that's not too poetic, <coughs> Right, just to go back to the West Front again, this incredible West Front with the people and the domain of royalty, the apostles and Christ. There's also a series now which can continue up, and we get seven levels altogether until we get to here. And I haven't got time to develop that on this particular occasion. I did it when I was in India, but I'm going to talk particularly about this window here. Next one. I just wanted to make the point, when the facade, which is standing up in space, is folded down, or you could say when the ground is brought up to be pointing towards heaven, the labyrinth and that rose window are the same size and they cover each other exactly. Now that kind of coincidence could not possibly have been without intention, in my mind. I'm quite happy for somebody else to believe it was. But this is the point of folding, the very first step you take. That step is the intention to move into sacred space from profane space. And once you make that intention, you have the chance of finding yourself here, which is quite impossible in, in that sense. <coughs> Next one here. 
Now, as I said, I wanted to talk about this particular window, but here, what we're seeing is now, this is the transformation. We're now one step inside, and suddenly, all that which was grey stone and metallic colours and so forth, has suddenly transformed into brilliant colour, and has an incredible effect on one. In fact, I took a, um, a student there, his name was Farouk Hussein, I don't know if Paul Martin's in the room, I think he is, Paul Martin was there at the time, and we, we, we brought Farouk, who was an extremely sensitive um, Muslim, who was just fascinated, one of the students came along, he came, he turned around, looked at the windows, and was in a trance. And the man who was taking his hand <laughs> was explaining everything in detail, got very cross, Farouk, pay attention! And Farouk was absolutely transfixed, he <laughs> couldn't hear what the guy was saying about what was happening in the glass. Anyway, it has a transforming effect if one is able and allows oneself to lend, lend, lend to it. Anyway, next one here. What has happened? Sorry, what I should be saying, what's happened? That, that little circle with Christ, um, with the, with the uh, wounds, that is, Christ after, after the uh, crucifixion, that point swings down in space and covers this little circle here exactly on the floor. That is the centre of the zebra. So that there's a folding point there, and that circle there, and that circle there are able and can come to meet. Right, we're going to have a look at this one down here, and I'm now going to move into a rather more audacious um, suggestion. We're talking about light bodies. We have now, for quite a few years, been familiar with the doctrines of light bodies coming from the other religions, and I think, I hope it's acceptable for me to put this next proposal to you. Next one here. This window is called the Jesse window. And this is Jesse, and this is the root of Jesse, and this is the um, divine royal inheritance until we get to Christ. So we have here Jesse and the root, and a series of the, there are seven in all, kings from the Old Testament, which eventually give rise to Mary, who gives rise to Christ. Now, the, when I saw this, and I think the same thing happened to Farouk, and I had been studying a book on yoga, and I'll show you the image from that book. Next one on there. The coincidence was too much. And not only was it too much, uh, I, the, the very fact that this is called the root of Jesse, and Jesse's wearing this intensely red garment, is precisely the same tradition. This is, this is bright red in all the traditions. These vary in the teaching of the different colors. But what we have is, these are stages in the royalty of one's being. And the whole issue is to get to that point there, to have control of the heart. We have 12 petals with 8 petals below it. Now if I can just go, no it doesn't matter, we'll come back to it. And then we have these, each one of these are called chakras, they have a precise geometry, they have a precise numerical value, and they are not available to the normal physical eye. You have to have taken a lot of training, meditative medita training, to be able to see these things. And that's one of the reasons why, quite correctly, they were kept esoteric in Christianity to teach other, but they were revealed quite openly in a diagram like this, in my opinion. Exact, the number is exact here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, same here from Jesse, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and the crown one is here. This crown one here is Christ in this case, and he's surrounded, which we'll see in a minute. Let's see what Christ is surrounded with. <coughs> a bigger part. First is, there's Christ, and this is before the glass is cleaned. Next one here. This is the next one here, please. This is just to make that point about Jesse and the root of Jesse. The, the tree is coming from precisely the anatomical position that the chakras are placed. And the tree works in this rather curious way. Uh, the king it himself is the joining between that part of the... In fact, this is just like 
many Islamic diagrams, there's no physical connection between that and that stage in the growth there. It's actually broken. It means it's broken. It is only made continuous by the king taking up the position of the chakra. Now, what we find, Christ is surrounded by a series of circles which happen to have the dove of the Holy Spirit in them. They are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if we see them like this next one here, this is an engraving done by Lassus. I don't think it takes much imagination to see, again, the Jewish Kabbalah diagram. Even to reading what is inside that Sapientia, Concilium, um, Intellectus. So here we have the Holy Spirit inside, but we have the tree. Christ is taking up the position of this center and this center, and Mary is the root. Maria, Mater, Matter, they're all the same root. They come from the same root. So here is the basis of the tree in Mary, and then the next one will be here, where the Christ's feet are, and then we have the tree. So quite an incredible marriage. But not by somebody going and reading books on yoga for goodness sake, by people having the inner actual experience of it. And this is where the teaching, the only places it come from. Next one. Now, just in case one is sceptical, a very remarkable set of scholars, much later, Christopher Owen was one of them, formed a thing called the Royal Society in this country, a totally esoteric group originally. And one of those, Robert Boyle, a very respected um, English scientist, Boyle's lawyer still told in physics, produced some incredible notebooks of which there's no written words at all, just demonstrating the esoteric Here is Christ actually in crucifix form with the same Kabbalistic diagram in two different sizes, again, as I showed in the chart inside his body. No explanation, but just to make the point once again, there's always been this transmission which is not exoteric, not written in books, and is um, it re-emerges in great periods and it's just fascinating that Christopher Wren is a close friend of Robert Boyle's. That's moving way in front, in time, from here. I just wanted to make the point that the book is available if anybody wants to go and look at it. Next one here. <coughs> now what happens when we see an illustration of God or Christ as Pankator, as the, as, as the creator of all? We see this. I was brought up in an art school which was told, this is, this is naive, primitive art, chaps. You know, Renaissance hadn't happened yet. All that good stuff hadn't exploded on the world. And these poor naive people didn't quite know how to do it. And I saw all that stuff and thought, oh yes, what a shame. You didn't quite know how to do it. You know, perspective, etc. Didn't know that some people shouldn't be little and others big and things like that. I saw it all. But, of course, what one is looking at here is, is, is a series of layers of meaning to that imagery. Here we have the rainbow body, which is a word common to Buddhism and to Christianity made at the time. That is the light body in this form. We have Christ, there's one major circle here, there's another major circle here, and then there's the manifest circle here. What is happening? He has in his hands the divine instrument. The word, they weren't called architects. The word, the word architect was about at the time of Shach, but they were called masters of the compass. And here's the compass he's using. What is it? It's actually got a head near to his throat, it comes down to his heart at which point it divides. The one axis stays centrally, it's on the heart side. One axis stays centrally to the center of creation. This is known as the ray of creation. The compass itself is the alpha, and the creation is the omega. It's all there. And what's interesting, also, people have often laughed at me when I said, angels, angles, same thing. Who is controlling the angle of an angel? 
So that, 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 that etymological link, right, literally painted in here. Here are the four angels who are in charge of sorting out the chaos into the four material solid liquid gases radiation. Next one. Then if we look up what we did, the first group of students, we, we all had the good fortune of being allowed in the cathedral before anybody else, and we lay on the floor of the cathedral and looked up. And all of a sudden we realized we were also looking at chakras, if you like, in the very bosses of the cathedral. Those bosses didn't occur in Romanesque architecture, but the first time they occur is quite cool. And here is the central boss, the boss where the only place you can see all the four rose windows. Therefore it will be the heart. Next one here. And in the tradition that comes from India, we learn that the heart is symbolized by having 12 petals. And I shall come back to that. And here we have 12 oak leaves, which is very, very interesting in terms of Robert Graves's uh, version of, of the mythology. One, two, three oak leaves here. One, two, three there. One, two, three there. And one, two, three there. 12 oak leaves make up this major hole in the roof of the cathedral. Right, good fortune, when I was doing this, I went to the British Museum and I found a miniature. Might be focusing, Jonathan, and I was quite knocked out. That was in an open, I wasn't hunting for it, it was just presented to me. Here's Mary, after Christ has gone, with the twelve disciples. And what is happening? That inside a cathedral, there is a boss with a hole in it, and out of that boss is coming this very strange little white, sort of ectoplasm-looking sort of a stuff. And the only reason we know what it is is because there's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually coming through the box onto the crowns of the twelve disciples and him. Well, I should say eleven disciples and Nevertheless, there we are, coming through the box. This house, when we were up there, the most incredible thing was huge updrafts and downdrafts of air coming through these holes when we were up there. It was really quite nerve-wracking. Given that connection between pneuma and spirit, we felt very strongly that there's a lot of things going on there which are quite beyond our understanding. Sadly, sadly now, that is filled with a battery of electricity which is pouring light down onto your From ectoplasm to electricity. Um, next one here. So, here we have the plan again. We're now going to look at that point, the geometry of this major arc. That point. Next one over there. There is that point. It is a statue. As I said, on the south side, it is Christ, after his incarnation, presenting us with the Gospels. Now, um, I know there will be one or two Muslims <coughs> present. This is so remarkably like, almost identical to the form of what's called an Iwan in a mosque. It's quite incredible. Form never seen before in Christianity. Suddenly, this is the upturned heart open the outside world, not open to sacred space inside, suddenly it was, they were able to see the whole city as sacred and it was safe for them to actually carve sacred figures on the outside before you enter the sacred space. But that is one of the axes of the arc there, the geometry. The other side is Mary holding the Christ child. So the whole dimensions of Christ's mission on earth is, 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 is between there where he's the child and here where he's um, presented the Gospels. Next one, here. Above is this very, very remarkable example of how the geometry and the naturalism of the sculpture and the iconography work together. This is what is in this space here, 
And here's Christ in glory, Mary on one side, John on the other side. And there was a German engineer with no esoteric uh, connections or pretensions or anything else, took um, a very, very um, thorough scrutiny of, of a plaster cast of this tympanum in, in a museum in Paris. And this is the result he came to. He discovered the geometry of those curves are based on a five-pointed star. Precise five-pointed star. This point here is the centre of that arc, very precisely geometrically. This point here is the centre of this arc, very precisely. This is the, the feet of John, this is the feet of Mary. And the five-pointed star is in there. He also discovered that the souls being judged here, whether they go to hell or whether they go to heaven, they are in themselves in a double square exactly. But that double square opens up to become a golden mean rectangle where the four angels are enclosed. Very, another very interesting metaphor between angels and angels. That is the golden mean rectangle, that's the golden mean rectangle. Above is this. And what we see here is that this centre here is the heart of John. This centre here is the heart of Mary. And what we have here, we'll take a closer look at it on this one. If we're going to be talking chakras, we might as well talk chakras. Where was Christianity born from? in the vocal cords of Christ. It was manifest from the voice. And it was recorded by the four gospel writers. So <clears throat> the geometry is actually centred, focused on the actual vocal cords of Christ here, and the root chakra, as it's called, is that dimension between there and there. Okay, and again, the pillar of his blogging comes to this point here. The lance, which was penetrated with, comes from that exact geometry there. The geometer and the sculptor were working exactly in harmony. The freedom of the sculptor was immense because he was given just key points and those key points the, 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 the geometer would also <coughs> have given to the architect to get his curvature right. Next one now. <coughs> right, let's go back down. We've just been talking about this, the golden green rectangles here and so forth. Let's come back to the actual figure which is the centre of that geometric arc. Here's Christ with the Gospels, and he has in his hand the Gospel itself. Absolutely fascinating. Three seals on it. The geometry on this is absolutely fascinating. Most fascinating of the lot, of course, is it is a golden mean rectangle itself. Precisely a golden mean rectangle. But not just a golden mean rectangle. Next one here. A golden mean rectangle, which is lying at a certain angle on his body. And the centre of this corner is on one of what's called the lower chakra, and the higher one is on his heart. So something is being said here in geometry. You see the double square in here. All sorts of intriguing um, numerical language being spoken here in, in pure imagery. The way in which one moves from this centre to this centre in one's being is through the golden mean. And the word golden mean, of course, in Greek, meant very simply do as you would be done by. That's one of the moral teachings of the golden mean. But in this case, what does that golden mean actually mean in other senses. But we'll see. Next one here. There he is as a doorpost. And Christ said, knock and it shall be opened. Now what's so incredible about the planning of this building is not only the dimensions, but the way in which a single person's eye level was taken into account to appreciate the teaching. Knock and it shall be opened. We knock on these doors at the south side, the doors are open, and suddenly the significance of this book and the rose window, which is 200 feet away, suddenly come... And this slide, by the way, wasn't cooked by me. It was one you can buy at the store. Next slide here will show you what happens. 
Now, if that isn't a statement about the meaning of what that rose window is and the 12 intervals of it, I don't know what is. That is the last step you stand before moving into the sacred space. And suddenly, there is the center of the rose window and the 12 petals. Each one of those rose windows has 12 petals. is precisely appropriate <coughs> to that position in the body in the esoteric teaching. Quite, quite incredible. Let's have a look at that window because it's one of the most beautiful things in Europe. I'm going to take a little bit of a liberty with this window, and I hope I'll be forgiven by certain members of my audience. I was given a prompt by my chairman, and I'm about to do. He gave a remarkable lecture on um, Shakespeare. But here we have the totality of time before the birth of Christ. These are the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. This is the totality of the Torah before the birth of Christ. And here's the Christ child, and Mary is black. The, the tradition of the Black Mary has always been there at Shah, even before it was Christianized. Next one here is the window immediately above Christ we just saw is also 12 pi. This is all time after the advent of Christ. This is the fulfillment of all time. And here is, there are 12 kings, each of which is holding a flask in one hand and a musical instrument in the other. And that's the massive mystery. Christ in the middle with the grail in one hand and blessing with the other, here. So here's another immense mystery. This is precisely opposite that one. And again, looking down, another 200 feet down to the west, we see the third rose window, all of which are 12-fold symmetry. We see the first one we passed under when we came into the building. And here's Christ with the, with the wounds, the five wounds, and here he is in his four-fold geometry. And we find the four Gospels of which John is put at the top. The eagle of John is here. The lion of Mark is here. The ox of Luke is here, and Matthew the angel is down here. So, again, quite an incredible thing. And I wanted to point out, and I think I forgot when I was showing the image of the chakra, in the Hindu or Vedic system, the heart is 12, but it has a little one below, which is 8. And we have that here, but we have 12 of them. But let's just see this very remarkable thing called the Round Dance of Jesus, which was taken out of the Bible by Clement published the Round Dance of Jesus, and I think it's in here, if I remember rightly. This is a hymn of Jesus, which Christ insisted that the, the, the twelve disciples danced around him in the center. And this, of course, has been taken out of Christianity. And this is what they sung. The grace dances after play the all us. The number eight dances with us. The number twelve dances about. The whole cosmos takes part in the dance. Whosoever does not take part in the dance does not know what shall come. Now, of course, again, a Muslim would understand this much more easily than a Christian, because the dance is the zikr. The, 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 the praying in movement is something which uh, is kept alive in Islam and is fundamental to Chinese Taoist system, but, but not in Christianity. Puritanism, I'm afraid, turned out. Next one over there. Back to the central window again, and just to point out some very, very remarkable things. Can we have the next one here too, because it's too bright, this one? These are both the same window. Here again, the Black Mary and the Christ Child. And in the heart of the Christ Child is the world. And here we have the most remarkable thing, four different images of the Holy Spirit. So we have four angels giving a straight to Mary here, and we have four cherubims facing outwards into the space. So there's a great deal of um, uh, esoteric teaching going on here. When we get to here, we're much more straightforward. This is the... Um, in Judaism, there is a spiritual teaching which relates to the 12 kings. In the same way, in Islam, there's a group 
within Islam who worship the 12 followers, the 12 inheritors of the line of Muhammad. It's a form of Shiism. Now, in this case, I'm going to suggest that what is one of the obvious things which are happening here is that this doctrine is being given openly and simultaneously. Here I've shown a close-up so we can see David is at the top. The great musician David is at the top. Solomon is here and Rabbaram is here. Now, what I'm going to do, this is a tip I was given by my chairman who's sitting over there. I hope you'll allow me to do it. Next one over there. I've drawn up the 12 king-becoming graces of Macbeth. Because I not only find them, I have done for many years time, but I've drawn with this form. And so these are as they are spoken by Malcolm in sets of four, three sets of four. Verity, temperance, stableness, bounty, perseverance, mercy, loneliness, devotion, patience, courage, and fortitude. Of course, Malcolm said these things he didn't have, but nevertheless, these are the things which um, were, were put into that play, and as far as I can say, are probably the most fundamental esoteric teaching. What's fascinating, in terms of the ten, five this side and five that side, in the Kabbalistic system, five are on the side of justice and five, a bigger problem, one side of the tree is on the side of justice, the other side of the tree is on the side of mercy. That's the reason I've colored it like this. The difference between 12 and 10 being most curious symmetry between mercy and justice. They're the two sides of the pillars of the Kabbalistic tree. Next one here. All I'm suggesting by that diagram is there was a similar teaching in the understanding of why all 12 patriarchs, the world patriarchs of the Old Testament, were given simultaneously in there. I just want to go into the geometry of that window as my final thing. You've all been extremely good and patient. I've never screamed at me yet because I haven't stopped talking. It must be. Mm -hmm. um, next one here. This is the geometry. The geometry. What an incredible piece of geometry it is. Based on the 12 squares and the way in which those 12 squares, the only pattern which harmonizes two of the proportional systems of Plato, that is, the proportional system of the square root of 3 and the proportional system of the square root of 2, which have A size papers of this. Uh, you can see an equilateral triangle lurking in there, it's not too obvious, but you can see the squares. That square is exactly root 2 smaller than that one. That one is the root 2 smaller than that one, that's root 2. And the square root of 2 was the basis of Plato's argument in the Mino dialogue as to how he could demonstrate that a slave boy with no training in mathematics could have drawn out of him mathematical, profound mathematical truths. He used the square root of 2 to do it, which was a diagonal of the square. Jonathan, if, if you go with me, don't put too much out of focus, but if this is put out of focus, which is part of the role of a sacred piece of geometry, you can see strange things happen. When you take it to there, immediately it goes into curves. We bring it back again. And we can see in those curves a quite extraordinary space and time diagram. Now I'm going to jump from there to representing it not only in curves, but by colouring it alternatively, a diagram. That's the same geometry, but I've coloured it in the progression of a flower which grows as a bud and then slowly spreads to an open flower and then collapses back the way it came. The whole life cycle of any living thing, whether it's tree or flower, or in the sense of human being, can be represented by that diagram, if you want to look at that one. Now, what I'm going to do, and I hope I can bring you with me by now, to show some visual evidence of the way in which these same truths were transmitted by two other traditions, two other religions. The first one here is the Vedic tradition. 
And here are the chakras represented by a man who was a realized yogin, and he asked the artist to paint exactly as he saw it. The heart here is represented in a curiously similar way to this. The 12 petals are represented here with the little egg, as it's called, of the soul in the middle. This is where Tom Thumb comes from, the size of the thumb. The self is the size of the thumb of the heart. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Represented this manner. That is a Vedic image. This is where the little 8 was, below the 12, the little 8. And every time the chakras are represented, they tend to be slightly different. Here's the twofold chakra of the brow, and there's the crown, and the lower ones down here. Now I'm going to take you to the Shah Mosque in Isfahan and show you a decorative piece of wall. Representational art is not encouraged in Islam, and never has been. But whenever you see a panel on the mosque wall, it is an image of the prayer mat. It is to remind you to pray five times a day. You kneel here, and as you go down to pray, your heart will touch here as your brow touches here, and these are the two angels on either of your shoulders, if you know how to read it. And forgive me if I've got this wrong. But what a remarkable coincidence we see in here to this, and again the 12 petals are present with a little egg in the middle. Next one. Also this lovely divine mystery here. I just thought it would be nice to return to that as a final meditation, just simply absorb it, because that's what it's there for. Not to be reasoned about, but to be absorbed. If I may finish on two quotations, which are from two different traditions. This is from the Vedic tradition. There is as much in that little space within the heart as there is in the whole world outside. Very simple statement. There's that little tiny space in the heart. It is the world in the heart of Jesus, who is in the heart of Mary here. And I'd like to finish, uh, with respect to Kathleen, who I dedicate this talk to, with a quotation from William Blake, because we have to come back to unity. From every one of the four regions of human majesty, there is an outside spread without and an outside spread within, beyond the outline of identity, both ways which meet in one. Thank you very much. I'd like to say is that I did have some printed notes and um, they're in my handwriting and maybe the English isn't perfect and so forth and uh, I apologise to the students who they were originally meant for, you'll get them tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of things, one says a lot of things very quickly and um, I'm afraid being a Platonist I believe that I am not telling anybody anything, all I can possibly do is to remind somebody you already know and therefore there is a bit of a logic behind galloping information. Anything that you don't remember, it really doesn't matter. That which you do remember, you can take two things away with you, that's fine. 
That's what it's all about. But if anybody feels I've trodden on some terribly sacred ground, I shouldn't have done. <laughs> Please, now's the time to speak. I must say, it's taken me five days to put it together, so I'm not surprised if you found it a bit of a burden. But nevertheless, it's so exciting to read about church, because in my personal conviction, if Christianity is going to have a revival, it'll come through studying the theology of church, which, I might add, is almost unfindable. It's a staggering thing that's happened. The school of sharks is an incredible synthesis of all European culture. Um, you, somebody says to me, um, what about that wonderful work, the hexameron, that the student of theory wrote? You can't find it in English. You might find it in Latin somewhere. There aren't so many people read Latin these days. So it's very sad that, that, that the major philosophy behind this cathedral and what it represents is not available. And I hope to God soon it will be. Because they dealt with cardinal things. Erigina dealt with cardinal matters. Incredibly interesting Irishman who brought with him Celtic Christian doctrine and, and really uh, cut right through a lot of things in Europe. And so did the School of Shark. But of course then what happened was, sadly, Thomas Aquinas re-embraced Aristotle. Now I'm going to get into trouble. <laughs> Who's Aristotle? Well, he was Plato's student, didn't you know? Aristotle was, was the biology research student for Plato for, for 17 years. And he never learned to drop the ego. <laughs> Plato never, ever wrote in the first person. Very interesting thing. A point missed by so many people. Plato never, ever wrote in the first person. Never represented himself at all. Never said I, except in his letters. None of his dialogues will find Plato present. Aristotle, on the other hand, uses the word we, I might say, all the time. <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, having been talking about sea shark last year, and uh, having read a fascinating book by a Frenchman's name, and I forget, what, what role did the Knights Templar play in the What book should say? I think they played an absolute cardinal role. Um, what seems to be the indication is if a civilization is a civilization, it is based on tolerance. And it was absolutely necessary to have the Knights Templar. Absolutely They were the people who took brought the esoteric knowledge, apparently, which was residing still in Jerusalem in certain quarters, again being nursed and nurtured by, by the Muslims and those who were sharing. They were independent, therefore, um, the church of America got very intolerant of their independence, but without the knights, the, 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 the roadways would not have been open for the stone to come to Shah, and, and it would not have been free track. In other words, they were the divine policemen of the situation. And there are many wonderful images the most exciting thing is that the story is that the knights were allowed. That, that doorway I showed you, the, the, they were allowed to go horseback to that door. That's why it's so big. Now, what does that mean? So it's outrageous. Knights going there. The point was, it was exactly the same as Zen story. They represented that they had controlled the animal nature. That a man controlling a horse is a symbol of a man having controlled the animal. Therefore, he was allowed in at the crossing. The kind of thing. That was the story of the time. Who swept up after horse? No, I think they were, they were cardinals. I think they were cardinals. I think they were terribly important. I think the incredible situation was that the church at Chartres embraced the Jewish doctrines. They sent their students down to Toledo to meet the, 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 the Muslim scholars. And there's recordings of it. So it was an incredible situation. It doesn't last long. Sadly, not long after that, the poor Jews were, were had a terrible time. Massive in this country, massive in France, 
within 100 years. I mean, it's amazing how the fortunes change. But I, did, I particularly wanted, and I hope for the students, to make sure that, that this is a Temenos lecture, not an architectural history lecture. It's very, not what you'll get from the story. Uh, I think unless there was any more questions. Um, oh, yes. The uh, records that might be uh, relevant to this, do you feel that they were kept at the time and destroyed by those who were building, or they just disappeared, or they were censured, or do you have any idea about the records that might exist? Uh, well, the very basis of your question is the assumption that one should keep records. Now, what's interesting is I met an actress very early on this evening. And um, she said she had a great difficulty remembering people's names. But I said, if you're an actress, you must have a... She said, but I have to learn something by heart. And what these people who built these buildings, they learned everything by heart. The Chinese talk about taking knowledge, turning it round and round and round and round in your head until it becomes united. When it's united in your heart, you don't need any records at all. Now, what's interesting is, until I went to Islam, I went to my first Islamic country, I met people who I was told, in my language, were illiterate. But that means unlettered. Very, very important difference. We use the word illiterate as some terrible crime. But to a Muslim, particularly a woman Muslim, they memorize the Quran, they want to know about anything else. There's no need for anything else. The whole of the Quran is taken into heart, and at any point can be recited. Now that is the way that the Masons and all these people they had all that knowledge here. In their the instrument, in the heart. No need to record it. Now, there, is, there are records of letters from one student to another, a fullbird, saying, do you remember those wonderful secret teachings we had in the garden of Shai? Now, so, so there is evidence that these are was taught. But there was no need to record it. Recording in other ways means that you leave records behind for people who are not scrupulous, who are not morally able to cope. Look what happened when Einstein um, made his cosmological equation equals mc squared. He did what we believe to be the normal thing in our rather unenlightened times to publish it. Who picked it up? Of course, the military. The cloud of nuclear disaster has ever since. Now, in those days, Einstein was certainly published. Simple little equation, which is the trinity equals mc squared. He wouldn't publish it. He would only share with those people who would not misuse it. These, these things are very powerful. To make stone stand up that high, never before spanned 40 feet, what a risk. The whole city and Christianity. Whole reputation on the collapse. Now, of course, one or two cathedrals did collapse, but that was only because they cut the stone. They don't have any. I mean, I was brought up, my lectures on Gothic was, there were loads of enthusiastic, ignorant chaps, and they just went on building until it fell down. When it didn't fall down, it stayed up. <laughs> I knew that was something wrong with that. Anyway. Any other questions? The answer is, go to shark. <laughs> and as I say in the Old Testament, seek wisdom, find wisdom, go for wisdom, it's the only thing worth going for. But only go to shark with you. Well, maybe you can do that. And that was another one. Thank you, good night, everybody.